Now, the scenes across the United States, they've been profoundly disturbing, haven't they? So much so that we at CIS decided to change the subject of today's event from is capitalism in crisis to America in crisis. First, the tragic death of George Floyd, an African-American man at the knee of a Minneapolis police officer. Then the nationwide protests across America, and then the wanton violence, looting, and rioting across many American cities, all alongside the unfolding crisis of coronavirus. So what does all this tell us about American politics? It's an election year this year. What does it tell us about American public policy and America's place in the world? Well, I can't think of a more distinguished scholar to address these issues than George F. Will. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, nationally syndicated across the United States at the Washington Post. George has been a regular fixture on leading American political television shows for many decades. He's the author of several influential books, including most recently, The Conservative Sensibility. Now, George was scheduled to deliver the annual CIS keynote lecture this week in Sydney and Melbourne, but of course the COVID-19 virus, uh, that interrupted plans. I should stress that George Will has been writing a bi-weekly column in the Washington Post since 1974, 1974. That was the year that Richard Nixon resigned over Watergate. Gough Whitlam was Australia's prime minister and the West was gripped by economic stagflation. Now, according to legend, when George Will was hired as a columnist in 1974, he asked William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review magazine, the conscience of American conservatism, the patron saint of American conservatism, he asked him, how will I ever write two columns a week? <laughs> and Bill Buckley replied, George, it'll be easy. At least two things a week will annoy you and you'll be able to write about them. <laughs> and with that, it's a great pleasure to welcome George Will. Hi there, George. How are you? Actually, Bill said that to me in 1973 when he, hired me, when he hired me as his magazine, National Review's first Washington correspondent. So I'm actually, this is my 47th year of column. My goodness. Well, I'm 48, so you've been doing this for about as long as I've been alive. <laughs> now, we'll get to Trump in a moment, but uh, I was going to say, uh, you must be annoyed enough times uh, over the last few years, you found it pretty easy to write new two newspaper columns a week. <laughs> Actually, and for a while, I was doing five every two weeks because I had the back page of Newsweek every other week. Yes, I, I don't believe there's ever been a day that I didn't have four or five things I wanted to write about. I always carried in my wallet and do a little card with topics I want to get to. And uh, the card is full enough that if history stopped and nothing happened for the next month, I'd be all set. <laughs> well, look, let's talk about the big issue of the week. And that, of course, is the protests and the violence across uh, many, many American cities, including Washington, D.C. These are dark days, but we've been here before. And you'd remember the riots and the mayhem in the late 1960s after the assassination of Martin Luther King. What do you think distinguishes 2020 from 1968, George? The big difference is we're not at war overseas. Uh, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King was the middle of three terrible blows to the country. The first in February was the Tet Offensive that punctured the American sense that progress was being made in Vietnam. Then in April came the assassination of Martin Luther King. And then in June came the assassination of Robert Kennedy, who probably otherwise would have been the Democratic presidential nomination. 
The difference today is, A, we're not at war, not fighting a ground war of attrition on the mainland of Asia with a conscript army, which divided the country terribly. Second, the politics in 1968 were more were healthier than they are today in the sense that uh, the relations between the two parties, particularly in Congress, were not as acrimonious as they are today. Today, the parties are at daggers drawn. There's no compromise. There's stalemate. And in that sense, I think people have a sense that of, of a kind of dyspeptic spirit throughout Washington. Not everyone agrees. Some people like Daniel Henninger, uh, another Pulitzer Prize winning columnist at the Wall Street Journal, he's written today that this is actually worse than 1968. And I want to read out what he says and get your response. He says, it's evident from the coverage that most of the demonstrators were born after 1990. By then, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society welfare programs had been in place for 25 years. Now it's 55 years. Annual budget appropriations totaling multiple trillions of dollars on Medicaid, food stamps, welfare, public housing, rent, subsidies, uh, federal aid to public schools, they've produced what? So Henninger's point is that it's actually got worse because the Great Society welfare programs have actually made a bad situation worse. How would you respond to Daniel Henninger, George? I think many of the Great Society programs did make matters worse, but the more important fact is they didn't make things better. In 1968, we still had the assumption that was at the heart of American social policy was that all social problems could be cured by economic growth. That, in the words of President Kennedy, a rising tide raises all boats. But in 1965, Pat Moynihan, later a great senator, at that time a 38-year-old social scientist in Lyndon Johnson's Labor Department, published his report on the crisis of the Negro family, in which he said 23.7% of African-American children are born to unmarried mothers, and that the family, which has always been the primary transmitter of social capital, the habits, mores, customs, dispositions necessary to prosper in a free society, the family was disintegrating in the African-American community. And that as long as that was the case, government programs would be powerless to reverse what he called, frankly, the tangle of pathologies in the ghetto. Well, today, 72 2% of all African-American children are born out of wedlock. A majority of mothers under 30, in, it, it, of all races, colors, and creeds in the United States, are not living with the fathers of their children. 40% uh, of all first births are out of wedlock. So we have a general disintegration of families that is uh, much worse in the African-American community. And that accounts for the intergenerational transmission of poverty. But to be sure, though, there has been impressive growth of a black middle class since the 1960s, correct? Quite certainly. Not just a growth of the middle class, but uh, the uh, coming of a large number of African-Americans into uh, first the undergraduate colleges all across mm. the country and the professional schools, business, medicine and, and legal as well. There is a segment left behind the segment left behind is all the more bitter because they have now gone 50, more than half a century after the problems were supposed to be solved. But uh, the fact is, you're quite right that there is a large and steadily growing African-American middle class. And we should also remember, as you watch on television, the scenes of disorder, that riots are telegenic. Peace isn't. 
and the vast, vast swath of the North American continent is quite peaceful tonight, I assure you. Yeah, and I should stress also that interracial marriage, which is a key indicator of harmony, that has been increasing uh, significantly since the 60s. Now, of course, one sign of progress was the election of a black president, and that was Barack Obama. But this week, George, he came out and he was among others who say that, quote, systemic police racism is a reality. Does the recent killing of George Floyd, does that demonstrate uh, widespread racial bias? Not among police. I do not believe that. Obviously, there are, pro there are problems of racist police officers, but they're a tiny minority. What it really demonstrates, and no one wants to quite say this out loud, is the power of the police unions. The particular officer who's been charged with second degree murder in that case, whose knee was on the man's throat for eight minutes and 48 seconds, that man had had 17 prior complaints about his mm. police behavior. The sum total of his punishment for those 17 complaints was a one suspension of 40 hours. Now, it just is the case that the police unions in the United States are so strong mm -hmm. that they can protect police from accountability. So that is something that has to be addressed uh, and is, I think, a more proximate cause of problems than systemic racism. Okay, well, now let's turn to the president, Donald Trump. Uh, in one of your Washington Post columns this week, uh, you said the following, quote, this low rent leer raging on his Twitter heath has proven that the phrase malignant buffoon is not an oxymoron. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> Strong letter to follow, yes. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Trump uh, has a rock solid base and it's in the low 40% of the electorate. Nothing he can do will shake it. But the amazing thing is that the man who lost the popular vote by 3 million votes has done nothing in three years and four months to expand beyond his base. Uh, his, his strategy for winning 270 electoral votes frankly eludes me, and I think the chances are small and getting smaller that he will do so. I said a long time ago, the problem with Mr. Trump isn't that he doesn't know this or that. And the problem isn't even that he doesn't know that he doesn't know this or that. Rather, the problem is that he doesn't know what it is to know things. He doesn't have a sense of mastery of, of any subject, of any, anything that would give him confidence. I'll give you just one small example. Uh, two years ago, the, an anniversary came up and the government was honoring Frederick Douglass, the great African-American leader of the 19th century. The president was asked about this, and he said, yeah, Frederick Douglass is doing very well. Frederick Douglass died 125 years ago. He's not doing very well. But that's the sense that the president mm -hmm. seems constantly at sea, constantly untethered from what you would think would be important information. But in fairness, uh, George, um, one can uh, agree with a lot of what you're saying and still say that many people, including yourself, wrote Donald Trump off time and again throughout 2015 and 2016. And he did cause a huge shock in November of 2016 when he defeated Hillary Clinton without winning the popular vote. Uh, I was shocked and Donald Trump was shocked. The, uh, some of his <laughs> staff spent the day before the election briefing the press on why they lost. Uh, it was a shocking event. 
but I think it's important to understand this. Never before in American history had we had two candidates enter the fall election season with higher disapproval than approval ratings, never before. Uh, the only other candidate we've ever had, a major party nominee, uh, to enter the fall with higher disapproval than approval was Barry Goldwater in 1964. I mentioned him affectionately because I voted for him. But we had an unusually unpalatable choice in, 19, uh, in 2016, and the American people, not unreasonably, having been uh, seen uh, Hillary Clinton as a public figure since 1992, chose the devil they didn't know quite so well. Uh, I think the, the chances of them uh, re-upping, saying, gosh, let's have four more years of this, is a uh, slight. But George, uh, some pundits say that Trump could use the Nixonian tactic of linking all this disorder and mayhem to the Democrats. And remember, chaos in 1968 drove a lot of people away from Hubert Humphrey and the Democrats to Richard Nixon. Question, could Trump use the looting and the violence, especially if they get worse over this long, hot summer, uh, could Trump use this to his great effect uh, in November? I don't expect that to occur. The, uh, a long, hot summer of these disorders, these disorders tend to burn themselves out. That said, if it would, were to go on into the fall, it would make the political system so volatile that uh, what you suggest could happen, would happen, that people would uh, turn to Trump. But here's the difference in 1968. In 1968, uh, Democrats were control of the House of Representatives, Democrats controlled the Senate, Democrats controlled the presidency. And so Nixon, as the outsider, said, vote for me and I will end the chaos. In 2020, Donald Trump is the chaos. Donald Trump is in power. Donald Trump relishes division. Donald Trump uh, relishes name calling and picking fights and a sort of chest thumping uh, his idea of manliness, uh, pro provoking his adversaries. So it's going to be very hard for him as an incumbent, as a celebrant, in a way, of, of chaos to fulfill the Nixon role of 1968. But George, uh, one thing that does clearly distinguish uh, 2020 from 1968, it's not just the racial crisis, it's also a health crisis but also an economic crisis. Now, in a recent column in the Washington Post, you cited research from the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago. This is named after the Nobel laureates, um, Milton Friedman and Gary Becker, past guests here at CIS. And the research that you cited shows that the recovery from the pandemic's economic damage um, will be protracted and perhaps made more so by some of the government's welfare programs that the US Congress has put in place. Can't this make the next few months even more toxic and destabilizing? George Will. It can indeed. Uh, the hopeful uh, uh, prognosis is that we'll have a, what they call a V-shaped recovery, a steep decline, sharp bounce back up. Hmm. The fear is that we'll have a W-shaped recovery. It'll bounce, it'll begin to recover. Come the autumn, just when the flu season is impending, the normal flu, we'll have another slump and it'll look like a W. No one knows. We do know this, and this was in the Becker-Friedman report that I cited. It is very clear 
that in their rush to do something, and I can certainly sympathize with that, Congress put together the Paycheck Protection Act in which they have increased unemployment benefits to a degree, to a level that makes it uneconomical for a large number of people to go back to work. Uh, they would have to take a pay cut. And they also require businesses to uh, hire back people who they may not have a use for anymore. So the, they've built in incentives for economic inefficiencies that are bound to suppress productivity going into the future. Yeah, well, you were originally scheduled to speak uh, at CIS this week to give our John Benython lecture to talk about um, or lament the fact that neither candidate, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans, are championing the kind of classical liberal beliefs that institutes like CIS represent, Cato Institute, our, our um, think tank in Washington, the Institute for Economic Affairs in London. It's, it's amazing because you think about 24 years ago, a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, declared the era of big government is over. And look where we are today. How do you account for that? <laughs> I account for the fact that there are fewer people who think the way you and I do. <laughs> uh, the, the fact is there is a, a great uninformed nostalgia for the New Deal, for example. Mm. Not many people who say, if only we could have another new deal now to get us out of this, not many of them know the following. Uh, there was a huge contraction in the middle of the New Deal in 1937. It's called the recession within the depression. Few of them know that the fundamental purpose of the New Deal was to cure unemployment. And it wasn't until 1940 and 41, when the United States began to gear up for, for, with military spending to be the arsenal of democracy, it wasn't until then that unemployment came below 14%. It was 14% when Pearl Harbor was attacked. So the New Deal, by its own standards, failed. Uh, Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, said to him in 1940, we've spent all of this money and we have failed. Now, those of us, you and I and others who think free markets uh, are the answer, know that one of the problems was that capital went on strike during the uh, New Deal. Business just gave up trying to anticipate the future given the regulatory fidgets of Roosevelt and his brains trust, and it prolonged a depression, a depression that was not nearly so severe and nearly so protracted in other developed countries. And, and that brings me to today. I mean, you've written about how many Republicans, young Republicans, say Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, who was a presidential candidate in 2016, he's talked about a, a common good um, capitalism. And uh, the question here is, and this is what you were going to address in part during your John Benython lecture in Sydney and Melbourne this week, why is it that these young Republicans are more inclined to indict capitalism for America's problems than to defend it? Well, they have focused on the fact, and it's undeniable, that capitalist dynamism has frictions and has casualties. Creative destruction, to use the phrase of Joseph Schumpeter, creative destruction is very creative, but it is destruction, and people are dislocated. And now today we have a foreign power to blame for this, some people think, that is the so-called China shock, 
although America has boomed not only since the globalization of the North American Free Trade Agreement, it has boomed since uh, China entered the w, the World Trade Organization. Hmm. The question is not does capitalism create dislocations that, that call for us to, to uh, ameliorate the hmm. injuries suffered by people. The question is, do you want to throw the baby out with the bath? You want to take measures that t- that take the creativity out of creative destruction? I think not. I think the most alarming development today, not just in the United States, but particularly in the United States, is what I call the great flinch. Americans may be saying to themselves, it's just too wearying, it's just too dangerous, just too anxiety creating to have globalization and free trade. Bill Clinton, to his great credit, when he fought a majority of his party to pass the North American Free Trade Agreement, said, and I quote him, protectionism is just a word for giving up. And I don't think the American people are going to do that. I think the American people still remain skeptical of protectionism. Well, I think on behalf of all of our CIS supporters, we'd agree entirely with that, uh, George. Now, in your column this week, you called out for a clearing out of those Republican congressional enablers of Donald Trump. Um, we've got one question here already. This is Blaze Joseph from Sydney. He's actually a colleague of mine here at CIS, George. And he says, quote, before Trump, Republicans and Democrats alike oversaw an economy that left behind millions of Americans, massive increases in government debt, wars that cost thousands of innocent lives and trillions of wasted tax dollars. Question, why should any self-respecting conservative voter in America Now listen to anything any member of the Republican political establishment ever says again. And Sue, also from Sydney, asks, wasn't the establishment status quo pre-Trump unsustainable? Fair questions. Well, I question for Sue whether the establishment so-called existed. That may be a noun that denotes nothing anymore. Once upon (laughs) a time, well, seriously, once upon a time, there was a Republican establishment. They had a newspaper, the New York Herald Tribune, it died in 1966. They had a bank, the Chase Manhattan Bank, run by the Rockefellers. They had the business elite in the United States. That died, I have to tell you, in 1964 in the Cow Palace in San Francisco when my man Goldwater got elected against all the forces of the Republican establishment. So the Republican establishment was pretty much an empty husk long ago, and certainly was by this time. We have so democratized the nominating process for president, and the presidential nomination is all that the parties exist to uh, basically to bestow, that the the gatekeepers, so-called, and the bosses, some of us long for smoke-filled rooms where we could take this back and, and turn it over to the people whose job is to win elections. But uh, I know a lost cause when I see one. I've backed enough of them. <laughs> well, Barry Goldwater certainly was in 1964. It was a huge landslide. I think he only... yeah. He only carried six states, but uh, I like to think uh, he actually won that election. It just took 16 years to count. Okay, let's turn to our next question. And it's Stephen Loosely. He's a former Labor Party senator and president of the Australian Labor Party, our left of centre party here down under, George. And he is, for, for what it's worth, one of Australia's leading political historians of the United States. This is what he says, quote, 
The Republican Party currently appears to have assumed the status of a cult embracing Donald Trump. Post-Trump, Stephen Loosley asks, will it continue to be so, or is it more likely to resume its posture of being internationally focused? In other words, will allies again be valued, and will treaties again form part of the core of American interests abroad? George Will. I I think that post-Trump, the party will revert to its internationalist instincts. Your historian is quite right. The Republican Party is more united today behind Donald Trump than it has ever been since it was founded in Wisconsin in 1854. Really? Even more so during the Reagan era? Oh, let me me tell you this. At the the 500-day mark of the Reagan presidency, he had the support of 77% of Republicans. At the 500-day mark of the Trump presidency, he had the support of 87% of Republicans. Wow. Uh, that's partly because a number of Republicans, and you're talking to one, have left the party. But mm-hmm. in 1912, Teddy Roosevelt, former Republican president, wanting to become president again, challenged the incumbent Republican president, William Howard Taft, and the party split conservatives against progressive Republicans. That split was replicated in the 1940s, the Tom Dewey, governor of New York, liberal Republicans against the Robert Taft, the president's son, senator from Ohio. It was replicated again in the 1960s, the Goldwater conservative Republicans against the Nelson Rockefeller, New York, liberal Republicans. No more. There is no dissent from uh, Donald Trump in the Republican Party because Republicans are terrified of their base. They're frightened of their own voters. They saw what happened to Senator Corker of Tennessee, Senator Flake of Arizona, Congressman Sanford of South Carolina. Those three got crosswise with the president. He unleashed one or two tweets and they disappeared. Yeah, that that hasn't stopped uh, some senators like Mitt Romney from criticizing the president to be sure. Pretty muted criticism. Pretty muted. Okay. Now, what does this mean, George, for foreign policy, though? Because Stephen's other question was really, will the Republic? I mean, if the Republican Party, as you say, is now captured by Trump, whose instincts are America first, nativism, why are you so confident that the Republican Party post-Trump will be more internationalist and Reaganite, if you like? Well, the, the, the pandemic itself is calling people's attention to the fact that we need international cooperation to have effective policies. Viruses are not respecters of borders. The United States economy is woven into the world through extraordinarily complex uh, supply chains. Uh, Our national security and military affairs from the South China Sea to the Middle East depends on the support of, of allies, not the least of which is Australia. So I have no doubt, whatever, okay. particularly well, if the next president is, as I expect him to be, Joe Biden, a former chairman and longtime member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah, and I think you've written a column that he could handle China better than anyone else uh, in the current context. Is that right? Well, he's, he has said that uh, President Xi is a thug. Now, it, it'll be tough for even Donald Trump to get rhetorically to the right of that. Now, on this question about American staying power in the world, particularly in in, in the Asia-Pacific, I host a radio national program at the ABC, which is the equivalent of NPR in the United States. And a lot of my listeners tell me that 
this week, if America can't police its neighborhoods very well, how on earth can America police the Asia-Pacific region in the face of a rising China? How would you respond? That's a very fair question. During the Cold War, which began really in 1947, 48, the Berlin blockade, the aid to Turkey and all the rest, late 40s, till the mid 60s, the United States had its arguments, of course, but the United States and foreign policy was completely united. Now that unity was shattered over Vietnam, but as far as dealing with the Soviet Union, there was remarkable unity right up until uh, the Berlin Wall came down in 89, then the Soviet Union disappeared in 91. Today is very different because uh, the American people do not uh, agree on much of anything in our, in our two hostile snarling camps. And that, will, that has to spill over into foreign policy. So whoever asked you that question pointed to the great unanswerable question so far is can the American people pull up their socks, stiffen their sinews, summon up the blood, and face outward in some unified way. I think they can, but it's only a guess. Well, let's keep with foreign policy. We've got a question here from Karen in Melbourne, and she asked, well, she says that Australia, like the United States, is now deeply concerned about the rising threat of China. Indeed, experts and pundits are talking about a China threat and a new Cold War. These are Kirstie's, these are Karen's words. What is amazing about all this is that Australia and the United States pursued policies throughout much of the past three decades that helped China economically and become a threat to America's position in East Asia. Wasn't this a remarkably foolish policy? That's one question, but also this one for you, George. Isn't Trump correct to try to slow down China's economic growth and contain it militarily? Fair point. Uh, we, we would probably flinch from the word containment at this point, even though we are, as Henry Kissinger has said, in the foothills of a new Cold War. But I think in answer to your question, or I'd say this, I do not think it was a mistake to bring China into the world trading system in the hope that, in the hope that this would bring with it a kind of cultural change in China. Frankly, from Nixon's trip to, to China in 1972 until very recently, nations around the world and both parties in the United States made a wager. And the wager was this, which was that economic growth would bring with it market forces, laws, adjudication, courts, a kind of civilizing effect of capitalism, which I profoundly believe in. We made this wager and the world lost that wager because China has said, we want the results of market forces. We want the results of access to international trade. We want this uh, access to international capital, but our most important value is regime stability. What the people who made this wager neglected to, to recognize was that this is first and foremost and always a Leninist party state and they will sacrifice anything to regime stability. It is a little bit too late to say that we don't want China to rise. China has risen. So the question is, we have to have a robust naval presence in the South China Sea. We have to have allies from Australia and South Korea and India and Vietnam and all the rest. 
China is strong, but China is not omnipotent. And the United States has its problems, but it also has enormous reserves of strength and extremely valuable allies in Asia. So um, it, it seems we've, as Kissinger said, we're in the foothills of the Cold War. Let's hope we don't scale the peak. Uh, recently, George, I interviewed uh, John Mearsheimer and Kishore Mahbubani here at CIS. And they both, although they expressed themselves in different ways, they lamented the fact that two out of the five US treaty allies, so obviously Australia, Japan, South Korea, but also the Philippines and Thailand, the Philippines and Thailand in the Trump era are moving away from the, the American strategic orbit, moving closer to Beijing. Doesn't that worry you? Sure it does. And it seems to me that uh, when allies look to the United States and see, never mind the disorders, those will go away. But when they see a president who disdains allies, who views diplomacy as a zero-sum game, my gain has to be your loss, uh, who questions the entire apparatus of the post-Second World War world order, they're obviously nervous, and they are right to be nervous. But the, the cure for one bad election is a better election. And yeah. my, my guess is one's coming. Okay, I'm Bradley. Uh, he's the former president of the Australian Council, um, uh, George, and he just asked a question. Do you expect that this Sino-American security and economic competition will become more intense regardless of who wins in November? I think it, I, I would say I hope it becomes more intense because I don't think we're conducting it with proper intensity and with a, a proper long-range view. But do, I think there's zero chance that this goes away. That, that's not a particularly bleak view of the future. Great powers have maneuvered before. It has been well said, it seems to me, that, that we're in a position somewhat similar to the position the world was in when Germany was a rising, robust mm -hmm. power. And the challenge was to integrate Germany into the, into the game of nations peacefully. That failed notably and ruined the 20th century. But... Uh, I don't think, uh, I'm not a fatalist about this. That doesn't ha need to happen with China. Yeah. Next question, Anthony Adair. Uh, he's based in Melbourne, a long-time supporter of CIS. Thanks for tuning in, Anthony. Uh, he says to you, George, you've described Trump in very critical terms. No argument there. How would you describe Biden and what would you expect from a Biden administration? Bearing in mind, Biden was elected to the Senate when Richard Nixon was president. He's been a, a vice president under Barack Obama but he, he has been in the wilderness over the last three years. Uh, your thoughts on Joe Biden, George? My thought on Biden is this. Right now, from his basement, where he, like the rest of us, is confined by the pandemic, he's making a lot of overtures to the party's left in an attempt to unite the party. But Joe Biden knows this. The left did all in its power to defeat him for the nomination and mm. failed that the Democratic Party showed that its, its vital center is in the center. The Democratic Party showed that the, the victories it won in 2018 when it recaptured the House of Representatives were won not by militant progressives, but by moderate Democrats. So I think when it comes time to govern, a Biden administration would be a, a more centrist than he is currently sounding. He also uh, will tell us something about his, uh, his vice presidential nominee because Mr. Biden has all but said he's a transitional figure. He will be 78, I believe, on Inauguration Day, 20th of January uh, 2021. 
so people will be watching more carefully than they usually do the selection of a running mate. Yeah, but Biden's very gaff prone. And as you well know, the Washington definition of a gaff is when a politician inadvertently tells the truth. Um, <laughs> he, he makes a lot of gaffes, George. To what extent are you worried about that? I think he makes so many gaffes that, that he's, he is, he's protected by profusion that they come so fast that they now become part of his character and that people say, well, that's just Biden being Biden. Let me tell you a Biden story. In 19, uh, 2008, when he's running for vice president with Barack Obama, the great financial crisis hits, Lehman Brothers disappears, everything melts down. Vice presidential candidate Biden thought uh, President George W. Bush was not giving uh, good enough leadership. And he said the following. He says, well, when the stock market crashed in October 1929, President Roosevelt, wrong, went on television, wasn't any television, wasn't any President Roosevelt. <laughs> this is just Biden being Biden. I, I don't think uh, people are going to be uh, uh, swayed by that. Now, George, just returning to our earlier subject about the toxic polarization and the political dysfunction in Washington, Robert Gates, who served with distinction in both Republican and Democratic administrations, he was a defense secretary under George W. Bush, as well as Barack Obama, former CIA director. Now, in 2014, he was asked, what is the greatest national security threat that the United States faces? And his response was, quote, the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building, the legislature, and the White House, the presidency. Well, geez, that was in 2014, well before Trump came on the scene. Things have got a lot worse since then. It is. And Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said, this was before the pandemic knocked the economy sideways, said the biggest national security threat to the United States was the, was the budget deficit running trillion dollar deficit, annual deficit, at full employment, at 2% economic growth. Something's going to be crowded out, and it's apt to be the 350-ship Navy that the Navy says it needs. It's apt to be the new hypersonic weapons and the new unmanned weapons and artificial intelligence. All of these things are going to be crowded out by the welfare state spending. So Gates is right. Mullen is right. Uh, it's an open question whether democracies, particularly once they opt for a welfare state, once the democracies say that, that we exist to give something like cradle-to-grave security, once this exists in an aging society in which the rap most rapidly growing portion of the population is the elderly and the most devoted voters are the elderly, it remains to be seen whether this poses a systemic national security problem, not just in the United States. Mm. But look at the, the contributions uh, in terms of percentage of GDP by our NATO members. Not, I think one, one, maybe two of them are fulfilling their NATO obligations. Well, George, Owen Harries, the Australian conservative intellectual whom you knew in Washington when he was the founding editor of the National Interest in the 1980s and 1990s, Several years ago, he gave a keynote 
address here at CIS, and he made the point that since the mid-19th century, the United States has faced three grave crises, obviously the Civil War in the mid to late 1860s, uh, the Great Depression in the 1930s, and of course all that unrest and upheaval in the mid to late 1960s and early 1970s. And he made the point that every time the critics gave America the kiss of death, it's essentially mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. America bounces back with tremendous force. Many people are not so sure today. How do you respond? No one ever got rich betting against the United States. (laughs) Remember 1979. Remember Jimmy Carter's floundering. Remember Jimmy Carter saying that he had radically misunderstood the Soviet Union after they invaded Afghanistan. Remember the misery index that you got by adding the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, and it was over 20%. I've said before, the one solution to a bad election is a good election. We had the 1980 election. Ronald Reagan came in and said, at our present moment, he said, the problem... The problem is the government. He got out of the way. We deregulated. Suddenly, natural gas is in abundance. Uh, This was even before fracking. The United Mm. States today, for all its problems, is a net exporter of energy. The United States has enormous reserves of uh, entrepreneurship, an an educated and industrious population, reasonable uh, labor markets, seven of the probably the top 10 or 12 great research universities in the world, the sinews of national strength have not changed. Well, it's it's encouraging to know you're still very optimistic despite all the doom and gloom about America, particularly in the last week or so. Um, What about uh, energy? You mentioned Jimmy Carter and the energy crisis in the late 1970s. One of the big public policy issues in the Western, in the world uh, in the last uh, few decades, but particularly in more recent times has been question of man-made climate change and and to what extent it's leading to catastrophic global warming. Um, Australian politics over the last few years, George, has been really ridden by this debate over climate change. uh, And we don't have a policy in place where we price uh, carbon emissions. Um, To what extent do you think that climate change is a a serious public policy threat uh, to uh, the world and and how, how difficult it is for countries to come together to put in place uh, legally binding, verifiable and enforceable policies to slash emissions? Uh, Legally binding and enforceable policies do not, of course, describe the Paris Accords, Mm. which were uh, to be filed under gesture politics. I tend to be one of those who says the following. Uh, The debate about climate change must begin with this assertion. Of course, the climate is changing. It never is not changing. I grew up in central Illinois, which a few, few millennia ago was covered by a sheet of ice. Uh, the climate changes. The question is, uh, the extent to which, and it is clearly some extent, human activity is contributing to this. And the, ex- the question, next question is, to what extent can we have great confidence on our models of climate change? The answer is somewhat, but not an enormous amount of change. The third question is, what is, what is better to make ameliorative measures to live with climate change or to sacrifice productivity and to sacrifice economic growth in the interest of fighting climate change? Remember this. We have now experienced the great enrichment 
to use Deidre McCloskey's phrase for what capitalism has accomplished in the last 220 years. In my lifetime, I'm 79 years old, in my lifetime, the percentage of the world living in severe poverty, that is subsistence level poverty, has gone from 50% to 9%. Mm. And that is the result of market forces and individual initiative and private property and all the things that your center stands for. Yeah, so what we, I, don't want to, we don't want to slay the golden goose uh, in a misguided panic over climate change, which, although real, does not promise to be, so far as I can tell in any plausible model, catastrophic. And as a footnote to your sound observations, it's worth pointing out that US emissions until recently at least, well, actually more so now during the pandemic, but they've been coming down, US emissions have been coming down and it's primarily because of that technological innovation you refer to like fracking, correct? Absolutely right. Fracking did that by, uh, uh, fracking gave us enough natural gas to completely replace coal in our electric power generation. And I must say this, I will take seriously, more seriously, some of the worries of the most worried climate change people when they say, okay, we will now endorse nuclear power. Uh, nuclear power is a complete win for the, for the environment. And for people to say on the one hand, uh, we're terrified that the cataclysm is impending out of climate change, but we won't even consider nuclear power. I begin to wonder how serious they are. Well, how on earth then do we get a, an international agreement that's legally binding, enforceable and verifiable? Because obviously Kyoto didn't work because it didn't include the developing countries like China and India. Copenhagen blew up in smoke in 2009. And Paris, as you say, is not really binding. So what does the world do? I am very skeptical of this. Because what you'll do when you get 160 or 70 nations together is you're going to have divisions north and south and east and west. And you're going to have the problem of kleptocracy. That is, people are going to be saying what we want is an enormous transfer of wealth from one group of nations to another group of nations, justified by worries about climate change, but only tangentially related to actually addressing climate change. Okay, now I should stress also, uh, George, to keep you on the spot here, Joe Biden, I understand, is towing the left's line against fracking. So that might well hurt him in some of those states like Pennsylvania. But here's a question from Lee, Lee Dixon. She asks, what's the difference between Biden being Biden gaff nonsense and Trump's Twitter nonsense? <laughs> George. Well, Biden's being Biden uh, is funny and humorous and fodder for stand-up comedians. Uh, Trump and his, his picky, his pugilistic tweets uh, goes to the very coarseness of our civic culture and goes to deepening the divisions, just as General Mattis said in his denunciation of Trump yesterday, that uh, it makes him the, the, the first president to set out to divide the country. Uh, Joe Biden brings us together in laughter. Yes, and uh, we should stress that uh, General Mattis, of course, was uh, President Trump's defence secretary early on. James Phillips, he's a board member here at CIS. George, he says that for American politics to be more driven by competition for the same centre, do more House seats need to become electorally contestable? And is there a real prospect of less gerrymandering? George. 
that's an excellent question. That if there will be less gerrymandering, it will not come from the Supreme Court, which uh, last year uh, made very clear that it is not going to find constitutional infirmities in the practice of gerrymandering. Therefore, it's up to the states, and the states can do whatever they want under the Constitution to have the electoral systems they want. Some states, like Iowa, have said we're going to give to a panel of retired judges the job of drawing districts without reference to a partisan advantage. Uh, other states can do this. Any state can do it. But uh, I wouldn't hold your breath because the party disadvantaged by gerrymandering eventually comes into power and it wants to disadvantage right back. Well, let's return back to public policy. And I love that Austrian economist expression. This is Joseph Schumpeter. Capitalism being like a creative destruction. I know you use that. Um, We've got a question here from Gordon. Are there any policies that you believe go a long way to reducing anxiety and uncertainty that global capitalism can bring? while mostly preserving the benefits of a dynamic free market economy. And he asked you this, George, if conservatives had to pick one or two policies they could live with to make the system more sustainable and palatable, what might they be? George. Well, I'd start with trying to learn what we can learn from the better apprenticeship programs such as those in Germany. I would find a way to end the American assumption that every child who's going to school beyond high school ought to go to a four-year degree granting college. Instead, more people ought to go into the trades and into the vocational training of community colleges. The United States has, let's say, a a sufficient supply of graduates of four-year colleges who majored in gender studies and cinema studies. (laughs) We, we We need more welders than we do lawyers. Mm, mm, uh, in other words, we need to reform the educational system to make it mesh with the needs of the economy. Mm. Then we need to make health insurance portable to end the job lock that makes people uh, who get their health insurance from their employers reluctant to move. Remember, when the Dust Bowl and the Depression simultaneously hit Oklahoma in the 1930s when John Steinbeck wrote his great novel, The Grapes of Wrath, about it, about the mm-hmm. Jode family. The Jode family packed up its belongings in its old Ford jalopy and drove west where they found employment in the aerospace industries in California and in the shipyards of California in the Second World War. We need, in other words, plans and policies that will help Americans become mobile again. Mm, to go where mm. the jobs are. The jobs are not coming back to the steel valleys of Monongahela and uh, River in Pennsylvania. They're just not. Well, you know, George, uh, John Howard, who was our Prime Minister from early 96 to late 2007, he's a regular guest here at CIS. And about two years ago, he told me here at CIS uh, similar points to the ones you just made. Now, we've got another question here from Anthony Carr. Great to see Anthony because he comes to virtually all our events um, uh, if a virus is not happening. And uh, we host events at least uh, once every fortnight. Great Great to have your company here today, Anthony. He makes the point, George, Guided by the establishment, the U.S. has repeatedly fought wars that it won militarily but lost subsequently. Question, is this the repeated failure that has turned the Republican base against the establishment? George Will. 
It's unquestionably our involvement in endless and indecisive wars uh, has, I won't say destroyed, but has damaged the reputation of what, uh, for the second time tonight, we'll call with a question mark over it, the Republican establishment. Mm. Uh, The American frustration with involvement overseas began with Korea which was uh, where the slogan was, we're supposed to die for a tie. Vietnam was the great catastrophe of the second half of the 20th century for the United States. Uh, The uh, swift antiseptic victory in the first Gulf War uh, gave the American people the false impression that with new smart weapons, guided munitions and all the rest, Wars were now going to be uh, quick and tidy in a unipolar world dominated by the United States. I happen to believe that almost as bad as the invasion of Vietnam was the invasion of of Iraq Mm. because uh, it uh, it was undertaken in part to cure us of the Vietnam syndrome. And I happen Mm. to think the Vietnam syndrome was an inoculation, not a disease. But... uh, (laughs) Uh, there's no question that our foreign involvements have been overly militarized. Bob Gates, who you quoted just a moment ago, has a new article, I think it's in Foreign Affairs, uh, just out in the last few days, on exactly the over-militarization of our our foreign policy, which entails the neglect of all the various forms of soft power that we can use. Let's start to wrap things up, George. And uh, I noticed you referred to Daniel Patrick Moynihan earlier on, the the advisor to President Richard Nixon. Of course, he was a Harvard academic. He went on to become a Democratic senator. He's also a a prominent neoconservative intellectual. And he famously talked about defining deviancy down. And you say that now defines American politics. Well, his old boss, Richard Nixon, A lot of people don't know this, but in July 1971, uh, this is what he told journalists. I think of what happened to Greece and Rome and you see what is left, only the pillars. What has happened, of course, is that the great civilizations of the past, as they become wealthy, as they have lost their will to live, to improve, they then have become subject to decadence that eventually destroys that civilization. Nixon concluded, the U.S. is now reaching that period. See, some of our critics, George, would say Richard Nixon was right half a century later. Cheer us up. I shall. Richard Nixon said that he was in a car driving down uh, Pennsylvania and Independence Avenue, one or the other, I've forgotten which, and he drove by the National Archives, which have the pillars out in front, and he was musing on pillars and rather like Gibbon sitting on the Capitoline Hill where he got his idea to write the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Nixon was also channeling his national security advisor, uh, Henry Kissinger, who's a friend of mine I greatly admire, a great man. But Henry Kissinger has brought to America and, and has seen it as his job to infect America, if you will, with a kind of European pessimism. Henry Kissinger came from a continent strewn with ruins, and he thought the American people have an insufficient sense of tragedy. Well, perhaps. But as I said earlier in our 
discussion. No one got rich betting against the American people, and they've uh, uh, the American people have an enormous recuperative capacities, as they've shown over and over again, and will again in coming years. Well, that is very good note to conclude. Uh, George, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you have been a pillar of the American political conservative movement for decades. As I said, you've been writing a column since 1973, 74, 47 years, extraordinary. You've never been to Australia, but we will bring you out next year, presuming that the crisis has passed. I wanna leave you with this. Um, you've been critical of Donald Trump, as has been very clear during this broadcast. On CNN this week, uh, Chris Kazilla, he made the point that, dismiss Will as a disaffected old timer as many Trumpists do. But remember too, that he is someone who was a conservative long before the age of Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I my, cast my first presidential vote for Barry Goldwater. I had my first job in journalism for, uh, as Bill Buckley's choice to be his first Washington National Review editor. I think my conservative credentials are in pretty good order. Well, George, you've been a pillar of the American political movement for more than four decades. Here at CIS, can I say on behalf of my colleagues and friends and supporters, and for those of you tuning in, thank you so much for being with us, and we hope to see you here next year. Thank you. Good luck to the Centre. These such think tanks are extremely valuable, and I look forward to seeing all of you in Sydney and Melbourne next year. Mm -hmm.